Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. I think there we go. Um, yeah, he said I had a big vision. I, I was an idiot. I just knew that the, I knew the gospel was bigger than me, and God had changed my life in college, and the chapel was such a significant part of that story, and I'm here, and the nations are here, and I started to go on short-term trips, and man, I just thought if God would be so kind and gracious to use my wife and I in this church to plant churches across the globe through university campuses that then would send laborers to the ends of the earth there, I was just like, that would be amazing if we got to do it in one place. COVID happened. We were only in one place. Through COVID, we landed in five nations, um, and yeah, it's all God. Um, and he did, he said at this time, like, he said, we've partnered with 20 churches around the country. We only partner with one campus in the SEC because we are biased. Um, so we, we, have, we have a church in Florida at Gainesville that tries to partner with us, and we're like, you have Tebow, we're good. So we don't, we don't do that. And, and, and we are thankful for our partnerships, but man, I did email four or five months back and say, hey, I know I'm going to get to come in the fall. Could we line it up where there's a game that works so that I could preach and go to the game? And um, and I grew up coming here. My dad um, graduated from here. I was at the earthquake game as a little kid with my dad I, in 88. I was at, in 97. I was at the Florida game and stormed the field. And when Herb Tyler, we beat Florida in 2003, it was the Georgia Day game. 2007, the Bird game, the TiVo game, and a few others. But one game I had never been to was ever really seeing LSU beat Bama in Baton Rouge. So I got to take my son for the first time, who's nine, and I didn't want to tell him, like, hey, this, you know, I know what normally happens. He only has been to one game, and this is all he knows. So we're going to live with that. And, and at the end of the game, he said, Dad, did you see Nikki's face? He was so sad. I said, I think I've I've reached the pinnacle of being a dad. <laughs> like my, my son realizes that this is all about saving being disappointed. Okay, so I'm excited about this passage. At first, I thought, I thought Kevin had really worked me over, like giving me this passage on submission. And then I realized the two passages before it were much harder. Talking about submitting to human authorities. Nobody in Louisiana submits, right? Look, drive this afternoon. And then, and then submitting to our employers, to workers, to masters. So this week we're looking at submission in the context of marriage. And the overall context for First Peter is so important to keep in mind. So important. We're talking about a, about a book that's written by Peter to a church that spread out through the world at that time, and they were entrenched because they were surrounded by a hostile community that wanted to destroy them, literally kill them for their faith in Christ. And you could see how Peter might have said, hey, hey, hold fast, hide, wait for Christ to return, and, and, and hope for the best. But he says, live as the spiritual priest that Christ has made you amidst a dark world so that they may see the living hope that you have planted in you because Christ is Lord and he is alive. And he starts to explain how we have all these blessings in Christ not to be hidden, but that through our relationships with others, as we submit to the human authorities around us, as we submit to our workplace authorities, as we submit to one another in the context of family and marriage, the gospel is maximized so that people will have a hope that never can be sabotaged. Like many of us are sitting in here today with a, with a visceral hope around where things could go with LSU, but you realize if an 18-year-old kid had dropped a pass at the end of the game, we would be sitting here with a different disposition. 
That's how fragile that kind of hope can be. Our hope is rooted in a king who has already defeated sin, Satan, and death, and he will return. And so we as his people get to live in that, and we get to live differently in that. Amen? So we're going to talk about marriage. And if you're like, man, I got in a fight on the way to church, and this is not going to be fun, and this guy's about to get preachy, it's not happening for me. I'm not going to present myself as the example. We're going to look at the word in Christ. I screamed at my wife this week. I admit it in front of all, I said her, I said her name very loudly. She's going to be up here on the stage later, so you can talk to her and hear about it. But it, it, she was kind of like, she was unraveling, like something was going on and we were talking about it and her face started to contort and she was getting loud and I didn't know what to do. And it was the wrong thing to do. I apologize right afterwards, but I'm just telling you that just to know that this is something I'm still growing in. So let's learn together. Will you stand for the reading of the word? We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, um, and I will read it for us. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of an inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of this gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're going we're gonna to jump in. We're going to look at God's design for the different roles in marriage. We'll see, man, how sin distorts it, and we'll see how Christ gives us the grace to be delivered in it. But I need to address the elephant in the room. When the moment you start talking about submission, immediately, especially in 2022, people start to grade against that. And, and you can easily leave here today, find podcasts, find sermons, find people who will explain away and say, that's not what the word means, and that's, this is antiquated, and this is not really what marriage is supposed to be like. It, guys, this is it's very simple and clear in the scripture. Every time it talks about husbands and wives, it asks the wife to submit to the leadership, the headship of the husband, and it tells the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. It's not complicated, but it is countercultural, and it was then and it is still today. But there's something else. Six verses for the women and one verse for the husband? Right, is that fair? That's inequitable, right, at best. So what is Peter doing? Why is he giving six verses to the wives and one to the husbands? Well, consider the context. In the first century, wives were not considered equal to their husbands. They were, they were basically property. They had zero rights, really. A husband could throw them aside, could even kill them without really any kind of justice coming after her. So imagine this, this woman now trusts Christ because that's the context and she may be married to a non-Christian man. And now before God, the king of the universe, she's a co-heir 
She's no longer less than him, but she's equal to him. What if she comes home and says, hey, I'm no longer property. Man, I'm a child of God. I have everything I need in him. And you know what? We're supposed to submit to one another. You're supposed to submit to me. It could lead to not just a bad day, but to her death. So Peter is helping her navigate this culture then and still today when there's such an imbalance. And let's face it, men, if we had gotten six verses with six different things to do, how many would we have remembered? Come on. Man, my wife sends me to the grocery store, and I'm calling her the whole time because she nuanced it, and I don't remember anything. I only remember one thing. So we need one thing, and the one thing we get in the last verse is more than enough. So that's what we're going to see. So let's look for the wives first as Peter deals with it. What is submission? What does this look like here? He's going to describe submission, and then he's going he's to qualify it with characteristics, with attitudes and conduct. So he says, wives, submit to your husband. So that word submit, the Greek word, is a military term. When it's, in, when, it's, when it's referencing military, it's saying to arrange your troops in a military fashion, to submit your troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. That's a strong word. In the non-military use, it would mean a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. The Lord is saying to wives, Lay aside your prerogative and submit to the headship of your husband and be ready to serve. And notice the context. The context says, do this even if your husband is the one who disobeys the word, meaning even if you're married to a non-Christian, which means even when they don't deserve it. Because I know the minute you start hearing wives submit to your husbands, you start to consider, wives, you know the list, the running list in your head of all the reasons why you shouldn't submit to them, all the reasons they've messed up, all the things you've seen on their screens, all the ways they haven't served the family, all the ways they've been selfish. You can start to generate a whole argument of the reasons you're not supposed to submit. But the context here says it's not about their quality. It's not about the husband's ability. It's not about his character. It's about you submitting to Christ and his ability and his quality and his character as you submit to your husband, even when he doesn't deserve it. So that's submission. But what isn't submission? I think that's important because there's a lot of misunderstandings. Let me tell you what it isn't, wives and men. Submission is not a command on all women to submit to all men. It says, wives, submit to your own husband. So this is, not a, this is not an unequivocal command on all women to submit to all men. Men, if you go up to a random woman later today and say, you're supposed to submit to me, I hope she punches you. Like, like it's not, that's not the passage. I'm sorry, I'm not physical. Yeah, that's okay. Don't do that. But, but don't do it. Don't go to, that's not the passage. It's a passage telling a wife to submit to her own husband. It's also, what it isn't, it's not an invitation for men to lead independent of their wives. This is not an invitation for you men to be jerks and to not talk to your wives. You're not supposed to be an autonomous leader. You're supposed to lead in conjunction and in companionship, which we'll see. It's also not an invitation, women, to unconditional submission, meaning there are conditions upon your submission to your husband, meaning that you are never called to follow your husband into sin. You're never called to obey your husband into sin. And I can tell you, we can see that with Peter and John. They're standing before the religious leaders who have crucified Jesus. They are threatening John and Peter and saying, do not preach the gospel. And they say, you decide which is right for us to obey God or man. So 
Wives, if your husband's calling you into sin, trying to get you to walk away from the Lord with these actions, you're not called to submit to that. You're called to explain why with gentleness, but you're not called to follow that. It's also, wives, it's not a call. Submission is not a call to put your hope in your husband. That would be the wrong idea of submission, and it would lead to all kinds of failure and disappointment. It's a call to put your hope in the Lord. Your husband will let you down over and over and over. The Lord will never. And it's also not a submission. Submission is also not teaching that women are inferior. Man, the, the Bible tells us clearly that God created male and female in his image. We are equal. Men and women are equal, but different, distinct. And so husbands and wives are equal before the Lord, but they're not equivalent. They have different roles. And the role of submitting is not in fear any more than Jesus, who is the Son of God, fully God, submitting to his Father. He was not inferior. It was just a different role. And lastly, submission is not some weird law keeping wives in the house barefoot and pregnant. This does not mean that women can't be in leadership outside of the home. It doesn't mean you can't lead a business or you can't lead in government. It doesn't mean you can't work outside the home. Okay, so what does it look like to work out submission? Um, Peter gives us some descriptions. He says, when you submit, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives that is pure and reverent. So that first one is pure and reverent. And see, see the context. He says, he knows how this works out. I mean, how, late, how do we typically, ladies, how do you typically lead? How do you typically submit to your husbands when they're not doing something you want them to do? You typically, typically are going to try to win them with your words. And he's very clear, they may be one without a word, which means the goal is not for you to be, brag, to be preachy or nagging, but for you to let them see what God is doing in your life, the beauty, an unfading beauty, which we're about to see, and draw them in. Um, a few years back, a famous example of this might be a guy named Lee Strobel, who's an author. He wrote The Case for Christ, The Case, the Case for Faith. He was an atheistic, evangelistic, I mean, I'm sorry, an investigative writer for the Chicago Tribune. His wife became a Christian, and he was so irate. He was ready to divorce her because in his words, he said, man, I believe she's going to, I thought she was going to turn into a sexually suppressed prude who spent all of her time in prayer vigils, and in grimy soup kitchens. But he said, I was pleasantly surprised, even shocked, at how her character developed into a humble confidence that was very attractive to him. It led him to start to see a hope in her that couldn't be sabotaged, that led him to investigate the Christian faith, that led him to trust Christ, and now he's written books that lead people to Christ all over the world because his faith because his wife won him to Christ without a word, not by being preachy or naggy, but because she let Christ change her with her purity and her reverence. So reverence means fear. It's, it's, it's the idea of why I said he's calling you to fear the Lord over everything else. Love God, love his name, seek his kingdom above everything else, and walk in purity before your husband. When a husband sees a wife who genuinely wants to honor the glory of the king, and is genuinely faithful to the covenant that, that y'all have made together, that is amazing. Every husband wants to know that his wife is not going to be running around with anyone else because she loves God and she loves him. That's one way to win them, right? And so then he says, the next one here, focused on inner beauty. Look at verses three and four with me. Your beauty, wife, should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, and the wearing of gold jewelry, 
or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So I'm going to step on some landmines, and they are going to go off, and that needs to happen. Because Peter was writing this 2,000 years ago, but the Spirit of the Lord through him knew exactly what we needed to hear today. He's saying the, what ends up happening for most women is that there's going to be a pull on you to, to make your husband and society around you appreciate you for what you look like on the outside. So he lists out three different ways that you could adorn yourself in outer beauty, braiding of hair, gold jewelry, and your clothes. And keep in mind here, he's not saying that if you're in here with gold jewelry, that you should leave it in the back in a bucket. You're like, this church is a... Okay, no. He's not saying that you should unbraid your hair because that's evil or that you should come to church with no clothes on, right? So, So we know that's not the context here. What he's saying is, where does your attention go? What are you spending the majority of your energy cultivating? Are you spending your energy cultivating an outer beauty so that people will look at you, look at your butt, look at other parts of your body? Or are you spending your energy cultivating an inner life, a new heart that will never fade because it's rooted in Christ? Man, and think how much has changed in 2,000 years. Proverbs 31 says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be greatly praised. That hasn't changed, but our missing of this principle has deeply changed, has, has, has also been unchanged. Today, last year alone, $16.5 billion was spent on plastic surgery. And in America, not in the world, just in America. $16.5 billion to nip and tuck and try to stave off the fading of our physical appearance. And then whether you're online for two seconds or in a grocery store, you can see the picture of what beauty is supposed to be. It's in every magazine. It's in every pop-up. If you're into Taylor Swift, and don't judge me, I mean, why not be into Taylor Swift sometimes? Her music's good, and she has a new song, Antihero. And if you listen to the words, if you see the video, man, it's huge. People either hate her or, or love it, but the whole video is going into her whole body disorder struggle and her depression, and she's standing on a scale in the bathroom, and she looks down, and she sees the word fat, and here's this beautiful, rich, famous young lady, and she's just saying, it's never enough, and then you look at Tom Brady. Nobody in here looks like Tom Brady, guys. I'm sorry. You don't have his dimple, and if you do, it's not as good as his dimple, and there's no way you're probably, if you're as tall, it, you just look gawky. He looks the right height. He's got the dimple. He's got a lot of Super Bowl rings, and he's married. He was married to the supermodel of the world named Giselle, and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, and so when are we going to slow down and consider as the church, why are we reflecting the world around us in the way we dress? Because when we do that, we reflect that there's something deeply off inside us. So let me just give you three observations about what I see happening around us and just how we dress, primarily for ladies. If from one generation to the next we wear less, what in the heck are our kids going to wear? Because there's not much left to take off. Since when did a sports bra and tights become appropriate attire for going anywhere except for to your personal gym where no one else is in there so that's what's happening and it's not just outside the church it's in the church 
And the attention is not going to the glory of God. It's going to all the things on you. Secondly, if that's how you primarily have attracted your husband or your husband to be, then do you understand how illogical that will be and how much fear that will stir up in you? Because if he's drawn to you by your outer beauty, what happens when that beauty fades? What happens a few years later after a few kids and things are not sitting in the same place they used to be and you're like, oh my, and you start to wonder, is he wandering around looking for something better? And lastly, we live in a time where pornography addiction is endemic, not just for men, but for women. It's everywhere all the time. And if we dress pornographic, how is that helping others? So I'm not trying to be judgmental. I am trying to explain this passage in this time and say there's something better that God's calling us into. Man, this is one of the most amazing things about when I met my wife 17 years ago. Like I was a broken person. I moved to Baton Rouge. I had been in ministry. I was a pastor and I had been married and my wife left and was involved with someone else. And I came here wondering, okay, I still want to be in ministry, but I don't know about ever having a relationship again that'll work. And I met Katie about two days after moving to Baton Rouge, and she came over and borrowed a cookbook, and I was like, huh. And then just started to watch her, and what I saw was a woman who's still beautiful today, but she loved Jesus and loved people and loved the nations. And we started a date, and I couldn't believe how powerful and how unfading that was, actually how it would just get better and better. And I remember when I moved to China, um, when we went to China on a summer trip for two months before I would come back and marry her. She made this prayer journal for me. Every day of my time in China away from her had a prayer, a promise from the scripture, and something that personally she wrote to me. And I just remember waking up every day wanting to read the next day. I skipped ahead because why wouldn't I? And that's the woman I married 15 years ago. And the beauty that I see in her is unfading. And so that's, that's what Peter is asking us to fight for, ladies, this, this inward beauty. And, and it comes out also in a gentle and quiet spirit. It says, rather, it says, rather it should be of your inner self, this unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Man, just that idea of imperishable. Like, how do we even get to the idea of imperishable beauty unless we believe in the resurrection? right? We talk about the cross all the time. We talk about the resurrection once a year. Believe the resurrection because the resurrection is what makes sense of all this. As our bodies fade and get older, we know that we have a hope that will never perish because Christ is alive and he's coming back to resurrect us. And in that, this unfading, this imperishable beauty will be even clearer. But for a wife, it can come out in a gentle and quiet spirit. And if you're like, man, that sounds lame. The word gentle Jesus uses it to describe himself. Matthew 11, when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. That's how Christ describes himself. Do you see him as weak? No, gentleness is is strength under control. It's meekness, it's mercy. And then this quiet is not meaning you don't speak. It means that you have a calmness, a trust about yourself because you know that God is in control. That's precious. It says it's precious in God's sight. So let me just ask this question to our ladies here. Are you spending energy trying to cultivate this inner life, this type of heart that loves God and reflects his beauty in your life? 
want to pivot to the men? Yeah, you women are like, yeah, let's go. Okay, so husbands, let's talk about them. I'm going to get my wife up here in just a minute. Okay, so husbands, verse 7, it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So Peter turns to the husband and he says, you're going to submit to but you're going to submit by sacrificing everything to love your wife. Men did not get off the hook. We did not get off the hook when Paul says in Ephesians 5 that husbands are, to call, are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Like that led him to a cross, and it led him to stay on that cross in order to be resurrected and to purify his bride, the church. And so husbands, we are called to nothing less than to daily lay down our lives to serve and love and honor our wives. That is not a leadership that will hurt them. That is not a leadership that will disregard them. That is not a leadership that will lead in an autonomous way. That is a leadership that will lead in considerate ways. So, right, he, Peter tells us what this kind of submission sacrifice looks like for the husband. It means that you'll be considerate in all things. In the ESV, it says you'll live with them in an understanding way. You'll live with them in an understanding way. Um, in... Um, in the Greek, it's just the word for knowledge. It means husbands, if you're to submit and sacrifice for your wife and love them, you will live, live with them with great knowledge. Why is that important? Because how do you get knowledge about what your wife needs? You slow down and talk, and you listen, and you ask questions. What do you need, sweetheart? How are you today? What do you need this week? Hey, what do you need this weekend? And, and, and I don't mean like, Hey, sweetheart, I was thinking about going hunting this weekend, but what do you need? That's manipulative, right? She, there, now she has to say, oh, go. No, you just say, hey, the weekend's coming up. What do you need? Do you need me to be here and change some diapers and forego some things I want to do in order to serve you and honor you? Great, because that is the call that God's put on my life. Let me live with you in an understanding way to, to live with knowledge of your wife. That word knowledge is the same word we get in the Old Testament where it says Adam knew Eve and then baby started popping up. That is an intimate word that means you are one with her sexually, physically, emotionally, spiritually. The word to live with also has sexual undertones. So this is the idea that the husband is so connected to his wife that sex actually happens in a way that pleases your wife. It means you slow down and you serve her in all parts of life. It means we're saying, God, what does my wife need? And he says, well, go and ask her. And I'm, okay, so I'm going to slow down and say, how can I serve? How can I sacrifice? How can I date you? How can I pursue you? And what you start to realize is that in that understanding way, as the leader, we are called to lay aside our preferences over and over and over. That's the, that's the joy of getting to lead, that you need to have a few non-negotiable convictions and values that you will not lay aside, but everything else just say it doesn't matter. Like, I have a preference, but if you are different, you want to go, we're going out on a date night. You want sushi, I want steak, you win. Oh, you want to paint the door anything but pink? You win. Like, my, my preference is, I, it doesn't matter because I have convictions that I'm called to live out of as a husband. Convictions that we are going to seek first the kingdom of God. Convictions that we're going to honor the Sabbath and protect that space as a family. Convictions that we're going to spend quality time serving other people and that we're going to care deeply about making disciples of the ends of the earth. Like, those are the hills I want to die on. The rest, 
it doesn't really matter, men, because when we stand before the Lord, he's not going to ask you how big of a deer you bagged and what, what room of the house it's in. He's going to ask you whether or not you cherished your wife, and you nursed her and protected her and helped your children grow to know that Jesus Christ is the one king of eternity and that the gospel is the most invaluable thing that they could ever hold on to because it gives them something that will never fade. Amen? Like, man, we, we spend so much energy giving people things that won't ever really matter as parents, as husbands. Man, let us invest in the one thing that will bring glory to God in a trillion years. I guarantee you in five years, and I love the game. I was there at the game, but in five to ten years, we won't care except for a memory. Oh, I was there. In a trillion years, we will sing praises to Christ with those who know Christ, and that will happen because the gospel came in us and through us. And then it says, not just live in an understanding way, but be respectful and protective because they are the weaker vessel. Let me just explain that before you throw things at me. It, there's the obvious piece he's saying that it's not saying men are strong and women are weaker. He says weaker. We're weak. That whole, you know, nail in the head like clip, you know, on YouTube. It's funny. The wife has a nail in the head. She's trying to describe the pain in her head. And husband's like, it's the nail in your head. You know, one reason it doesn't work is because if the husband was first saying, hey, I have a nail in my head too the wife would be more apt to let you talk to her about your nail. So we have nails in our head. We're weaker. If you don't know the clip, Google it later. Not right now, please. But physically, most women are at a disadvantage to men. I know some of you women can take your husbands. Great. But some, most women have known all their lives that there's a situation. When my wife and my daughter were walking to the car yesterday to leave and not go to the game after tailgating, I'm walk thinking, are they going to be okay? I'm going to walk with them basically almost the whole way because I'm thinking about what she needs. And I'm walking on the outside of the road, not on the inside, so that if the car is going to hit somebody, it's going to hit me. You know, so we're thinking about that. But there's also, there, there's an imbalance in, in society. And they have to follow us. That means respect them as the one who has to submit, that gets to submit. And men, we're never, ever commanded to go and remind our wives to submit. We're never commanded to wake them up and say, hey, today's a good day to submit. Man, that's a bad, that's a bad way to start the day. Though it's scripture, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord reminds them to submit. We are called to love them and let the Spirit remind them. And so, and then it's be companions. Be companions in daily life. Wife, I gotta get you up here. I'm gonna run out of time. Come on. So I want to bring her up here because I want you to hear someone else explain this. And I want you to hear from the, from the view and the voice of, of someone that's amazing. So, yeah, you can get the mic. So as she comes up, I'm going to give you a quote from J.D. Greer about this. Spiritual leadership is not a license to do what you want to do, but it's empowerment to do what you ought to do. Submission is not about what women can or can't do, but it's about what men are called to do and, and don't. So our, our leadership is not about taking advantage. It's about serving and doing what we're called to do. Wife, hi. Hey, Katie. Hi. Okay, so Katie, can a woman, hypothetically, can a woman be, I, I don't know this is you, but can a woman with a strong personality still have a quiet spirit? Yes. I just want you to speak on behalf of those people. Thank you, Donna. <laughs> um, I could be quiet if I wanted to be. Um, yeah, strong and quiet. What is it? A gentle, quiet spirit. Um, yes. So it's no secret. I wouldn't be described as someone with a gentle and quiet personality. So I think it's hard. You read a passage like this as a wife and you're like, I'm already doomed to fail. Let's rewrite this. This is obviously wrong. So I do like how you went through the gentle and quiet earlier. I think that 
culturally we have a different concept of it. So that gentle, that Jesus is, that meek, that power under restraint, that you could use it, but you're choosing not to. And then the quiet, not being about volume and tone of voice, but about an inner quiet, an inner peace when there's difficult circumstances. So I can be on board with that. So that's helpful for me. Um, but I think for me, I have to ask questions. If I'm in a situation where um, all of a sudden I want to punch a hole in the wall or rage a lot, then I'm not having a gentle and quiet spirit. So then I need to ask, like, what's going on and what do I need to do so that I can get there? And often for me, that's creating some sort of contrivance so that I can match that posture internally. Mm. And that means coming away from the noise and the distraction and the people so that I can meditate on the word and meditate on God's character and beg like heck for him to somehow transform me. And usually it's, it's patience. I can't immediately respond. My immediate reaction is most always not the correct reaction. So um, yes, I think it's possible with lots of help. Yeah, so I've seen you do it. So what do I do that makes it easier or harder for you to submit? Mm, this is a great question. Wow, what a great lunchtime discussion for all y'all married people <laughs> that you could just ask. Like, why? What do I do that makes it harder for you? I think that's great. In, um, in fact, in case I forget to say at the end, I really do encourage you guys afterwards, men and women, to go and just ask the question, how can I serve you better? What am I doing that's not serving you better? And then just be quiet and take notes. So, but what can I do? Yeah, John has or like two tactics um, that don't go over great. So if <laughs> these are some of yours, you know, file them away for not awesome. But um, one is when he knows that it's not going to go over well with me, he'll just be like, "Hey, wife, uh, I made it. I we're, this is what we're going to do, and we're not going to talk about it. And the, the decision's already been made." And usually it's about something ridiculous, like when he wanted to buy flannel sheets. And, and to be fair, we had already talked about it, but you were like, no way, flannel sheets are Everyone terrible. Everyone is morally opposed to flannel sheets. Only, They're ridiculous. They're hot. Wait, no one wants to be hot. Wait, context. I, I was negative 20, okay? She was like in Houston. Yeah, we have a heater, okay? Oh, so yeah. he's like, we're buying flannel sheets. We're not talking about Doesn't it. Work. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> so that didn't go great. We did buy the flannel sheets. I also hired a tailor to cut them in half and put his side on one <laughs> side and ours on the other. But anyway. That's called compromise, See, right? Yeah, both we, people win. Both yeah. people lose. It's great. Um, oh another thing he'll do, though, is he'll sometimes make a decision without talking to me, and he'll just inform me later. So uh, one time he bought a basketball hoop, a goal. What do you call it? A hoop? Sure, sure. Whatever. He bought a basketball hoop. <laughs> He said, hey, I bought a basketball hoop today for the kids. And the kids are sitting at the breakfast table. I was like, oh, okay. How much was it? He was like, $700. And I was like, what? And the men here are probably like, yeah, that's how much they cost. They're a like, good, there's nods. One. And the wives are like, would you spend that on a basketball? Yeah, they cost that much money. So he's explaining to me, and I'm just like in shock and horror about this basketball hoop. And he cancels the order. We still don't have a basketball hoop, by the way. This is like a year and a half ago. But I think it, it doesn't go well when he just makes a decision and informs me because it's it's not even an opportunity for me to be able to voluntarily yield because he just kind of did it. Mm. So I think what's helpful is when there's a dialogue, mm. right? Um, when there's actually a time where he can um, let me ask questions and voice my concerns and sometimes ask my questions again and then again because I'm hoping for different answers. 
sometimes that doesn't work, but um, you know, and he actually gives me the time and space yeah. I need because newsflash men, we just really want to be heard. That's all we want. And chances are we'll quit nagging you if um, you let us just have 10 minutes to actually talk and hear what we have to say so we don't have to like come at you peppering. So that makes it helpful for me. Yeah, there's been few times in our 15 years of marriage where we came to an impasse that we couldn't figure out that I needed to say, hey, I need you to trust me. Right. The majority of the time it was with things like a basketball goal or you know when we were going to go to this family for for holidays or that and and we just needed to pray more talk to other people and I needed I needed to submit my preference. And the few times that I've had to say hey I need you to get on board, she has because it's so rare. But I think that's happened twice in 15 yeah. years. Usually yeah. it's like we just wait until we're aligned, right? Yeah. And then lots of outside counsel. Apparently, wisdom comes in the counsel of many, so the Bible Ke says. Kevin always knows when he gets a call, and, and I start, and Kay's like, I'm on here, too. Oh, it's about to get, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, all right, I love you. Go sit down Bye. before I get out of here. Thank you, babe. You're awesome. Um, yeah. Ma marry, marry up, gentlemen, marry up. That's always important. She's taller and prettier, so. Um, so literally, I married up. Okay, so this, this doesn't work. Guys, this doesn't work. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submitting to your husbands. It's impossible when our hope is not deeply rooted in God. It just can't happen. Like there's too many messages, too many conflicting things going on in our flesh and the world around us that are going to tell you it's crazy. And that's why you see such distortions. And, and, you know, for men, the ditch could be on one side when we're not trusting in the Lord and we're not going to let him be our hope and what's going to happen. We, we can either move into the ditch of being just a um, man, a jerk who doesn't take into consideration the needs of our wife. Or on the other side, we become a passive coward who abdicates leadership. And for wives, often when you're not hoping in the Lord, it's most evident that you are fearful, fearful of what your husband might think of you or what he doesn't think of you, fearful of what the world is going to bring at you, and you're adorning yourself in things that are fading. And the passage here invites us to slow down and to repent as we hold fast to the one thing that will change everything. It's the gospel. Do you see the way he words it in verse 7? Right in the middle, he says, since wives are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your, pr so that your prayers may not be hindered. He reminds husbands that this whole thing is built on the grace of life. Men and women come to the same cross and they come through into Christ and from Christ in the same way, on their knees saying, Jesus, I don't deserve your grace and you're not obligated to give me that grace and yet this is everything I need, right? Do you understand that about the grace of life that God gives us? That God is not obligated and we're not deserving? Like if God's grace feels like an obligation or you, it feels like you deserve it, it will never electrify and transform you. Husbands, you will never love your wives like Christ loved the church unless you appreciate that God was not obligated. Women, God's not obligated to love us. He's perfect and holy. He needs nothing from us. He's not obligated to forgive us, to redeem us. He wasn't obligated to send his one and only son to die for us. And last time I checked, I'm not deserving of that and neither are you. On your best day, right? On your best day, you need his grace. And on your worst day, you hope that you're never out of reach of it, and you're not. And that
that's the gospel that Jesus, the one who had everything, the one who had all glory and, and deserved all things, laid aside his prerogatives in order to submit himself to the Father, to submit himself to his parents, to submit himself to the community, and ultimately to submit himself to a cross so that through his sacrifice, all of us could be made new in him. That is the gospel. And Jesus Christ, if he could lay aside everything that he deserves so that you and I could get everything that he deserves, can we not day by day posture ourselves toward one another, not with a spirit of, hey, I can tell you why you failed and why you don't deserve me to love you, but could we start with a posture of humility saying, I'm so thankful that God doesn't give me what I deserve. And because he doesn't, I have everything in Christ, and that gives me ground to come to you first with, please forgive me, because on my best day, I'm going to fail to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And then it gives you ground to forgive her for the way she's failed to submit and wives, vice versa. That's why the gospel of grace, that's why being joint heirs in it is the only hope any of us have to live this out. But when we do, do you know what happens? Three things really quickly. Men, your prayers will not be hindered. That is significant. You want your prayers to be answered. But if you're going before the Lord saying, Lord, help our family. Lord, bless my work. Lord, help me do this and that. Lord, but you're not seeking to love your wife. Your prayers will not be answered. He's not going to listen to that. If you're not seeking for mercy to love and, for, and serve your family, but you're asking God for things that are, that are secondary to your primary call from God, he is not going to answer your prayers until you go and deal with your primary issue. So as we confess and repent, men, and then we come back to the Lord, he wants to answer our prayers because he designed this to work. He wants to bless us. Don't you want your prayers to be answered? Don't you want that? Women, you know what it, re it results in for us, for you when you submit? That you will live without fear around the future. There will be a fearlessness. You will laugh at what's to come because God holds it all in his hands. And as you hope in him and as the gospel gives you everything you need, you will not fear what you don't know, but you'll trust that Christ is working. And then thirdly, together, husbands and wives, you will flourish. You will live in an understanding way together so that the gospel goes forth from you in a way that the world has to pause and say, what in the world is going on there? You have something that I don't appreciate. You have something that I can't explain. Tell me where that hope comes from. And you'll get to point people to Jesus. I have dear friends who work with me and they're missionaries in Indonesia. Um, the, the, the wife, Kate, has been, was with me in China. She graduated from LSU, was from this church. Her husband, Stephen, they met during COVID. They're over there. And they're in their early 30s and they were just preparing to give um, birth to their firstborn son um, named Theo, and he was born, uh, stillborn, at 36 weeks last week. And um, I flew over to be with them and to see them and love them, and I didn't have any words. Kevin and I pray, talked before. He's like, presence, just be there, and that's all I was planning. But I listened to them, and they said some things that were not empty platitudes or simple cliches. They said some things that were born deep in their heart because of the grace of life. Two things they said that I'll never forget. First, they said, the ultimate goal of a parent is to raise their child to know and honor God all their days. And while we 
deeply we're excited to race Theo to know and honor God. And while we're grieved that we won't have the privilege of doing that, there will never be a day that Theo will not know and honor God and dwell in his presence. And I'm just like, what in the world? Like, no, don't have that attitude. <laughs> They're like, that's the attitude. I'm like, oh, Psalm 27, one thing I ask, to dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. And they're like, that's Theo's wife. And I said, that's incredible. And then secondly, they said this. They said, we moved to Indonesia to be missionaries to Muslims, to, to preach the one gospel that changes everything in the largest Muslim nation in the world. And little do we know that it would be through the death of our son and how we grieved him with hope, like 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us, and how we got to explain why we continue to hold fast to Jesus and how we are explaining that one day we know we'll see Theo at the resurrection because he will be there, that that would be one of the ways we're trusting that God's going to bring thousands upon thousands of Muslims into the kingdom of God for all of eternity. Men and women, you can't fake that. That is a relationship rooted in the gospel that me, and, and reminds us that marriage at its best is supposed to be about the holiness of God being on display through how we love one another for the watching world to find Jesus. Happiness and all those other things are mere entailments that are connected to that primary goal. Let us step into that. I don't know where you are today, but I invite you to come to this gospel. I invite you to ask others for help if you need it. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we rejoice that there is a grace of life available to all of us, regardless of where we're from, regardless of what we've done or haven't done, that it's available through Christ, through his finished work at the cross and through his resurrection and through his righteous reign and i pray lord that for those in here today that are married that feel like there's little to no hope left to restore what has been lost in their in their relationship i pray that they would find an invitation in the gospel to be healed to be restored and to start fighting for one another in the power of God with others around them. And I pray that there would be new life breathed into these marriages. I pray for those, Lord, that are fighting for their marriage to be on display, that you would continue to give grace and strength. And I pray that no one in here would feel isolated in this pursuit, that, Lord, we would do this as a community shaped by your love and by your power. And I pray, Lord, that as the chapel continues to honor marriage in the way you designed it, and as people live in that design, that there would be such a vibrant witness all through Baton Rouge and to the ends of the earth that you use to build your kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.